thank you for tuning in to the Voice of the Victim podcast. We discuss a lot of sad and potentially triggering things on this show. We try to be as sensitive and cautious as possible, but if you are sensitive to things involving abuse and may be triggered, please think twice before listening to our show. There are over 700,000 sexual offenders in the United States alone. With all the social media these days, how can we protect ourselves and our children from these despicable predators? Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast, where we discuss criminal cases that involve some factor of abuse. Our goal is to spread awareness of abuse that could be taking place around any of us and encourage everyone to take responsibility and report if they see a child or an adult being abused. It was March 24, 2015 in Detroit, Michigan. Being March in Detroit, the air was chilly in the mid-30s. A court bailiff made his way to the Martin Luther King townhomes in the Lower East Side of Detroit. He was looking for 35-year-old Michelle Blair to serve an eviction notice. Michelle owed $2,206 in rent. He knocked at the door, but no one answered. So he identified himself and found a way to get in. The house was filthy, but Michelle was nowhere to be found. Figuring she had already fled, the bailiff began moving things out of the home. Then, he noticed something a bit strange. There was a freezer in the living room. The freezer was pretty heavy, so they opened the door to clear stuff out of it. But as they opened the door, they were shocked by a horrific sight. Welcome to the Voice of the Victim podcast. I'm Rosie. And I'm Ryan. And before we start today, we want to warn you that there will be some disturbing things in this episode, including child abuse. Yeah, we'll try to be as respectful as possible and only share the details that are absolutely necessary to the story. But before we get started, we just want to thank you for being here and uh, sticking it out with us. We know we're relatively new podcasters, so we're not uh, at our full potential yet but um we're gonna keep trying to get better and definitely let us know if there's anything you think that we can improve we're always open to suggestions Mm -hmm. do you have anything else to say rosie before we start don't we have a thank you to give to our new patron don't we have a new patron the minds of madness well we already did a few weeks ago but we do want to thank them for sending us some stickers and magnets uh, in the mail. That's why I thought it was new. Yeah, yeah. And a sweet postcard. So thank you guys for that. We really appreciate that. Um, so we're talking about Michelle Blair tonight. Michelle. Yes, Michelle. Not Michelle. Yeah, so... Uh, you want to uh, tell us about the discovery that sure. happened after the intro? When the bailiff opened the freezer door, he discovered the body of a young girl. Immediately, he called the police and they arrived shortly after. Once they were there, another terrible discovery was made. Underneath the young girl, there was a boy who looked even younger than her. I would hate to be the police that had to come across that. I mean, I really respect the facets of our societal infrastructure that are able to deal with these disgusting things so the rest of us don't have to. I don't think I could see this kind of thing and move on with my life. No, I don't. Yeah, that would be hard. 
The girl they found was Stony Blair, who had been 15 at the time, and the boy was Stephen Barry, who would have been 12. The reason that we say they would have been these ages is because Stephen had actually been dead since 2012 and Stony since 2013. Stephen was only nine and Stony was 13 at the time of their respective deaths. So what could have possibly happened and who would do this kind of thing to a couple of young children? Well, as we already discussed, Michelle, the mother, was missing when they came to evict her. So uh, now they knew they needed to find Michelle. She had been talking to her friends and neighbors recently about how worried she was because she hadn't paid her rent in so long. She had lived in this townhouse for a long time, and she didn't want to move out. Her neighbors cooperated with the police and told them where they could find Michelle. She was staying nearby with two of her children, aged 17 and 6. Yeah, the police quickly found her and detained her for further investigation, and so far she was the only suspect in this case of what could have possibly happened to these kids, and they hoped that she could lead them to the truth. And the truth in this case is going to be hard to swallow. It's very complicated and extremely senseless, so just prepare yourselves. One of the neighbors went to school with the 17-year-old daughter and spoke to the reporters. We'll play a clip of what he said. I know it's some crazy sick folk down here, but for her, for it to be her, it's just like, what? Like, because she was so, like, nice. Like, it's like unreal. It's crazy when we see this because we're always saying if you see something, say something. But it really seems like more often than not, people around the situation are blindsided with the news of what was going on. But as we dig into this more, I think we'll see some red flags and things people probably should have noticed. Because on this show, we like to try to work towards prevention if it can affect even one person that could be saved from a horrible situation like this. We hope to do what we can. So mm -hmm. let's move on with some things from the past that may have, could have played a bigger role if they were taken seriously. So back in 2002 and 2005, Michelle had been reported to the police for the abuse of her children. Authorities visited her home in September of 2002 and February of 2005. And they concluded that the allegations were subs quote unquote substantiated, <laughs> <laughs> which um, means they did find some strange things, but doesn't seem like they did a whole lot about it. But she did end up getting referred for individual and family counseling and a psychological evaluation, which was provided through the family's first. CBC Counseling Services, who um, they assist families by teaching, modeling, and reinforcing parenting. So it is nice to see that they were taking a more therapeutic route to helping the situation um, instead of just punishment. So, I mean, it seems like a good setup to me. Michelle had received counseling after these reports, but... It could have been just a slap on the wrist if she was actually abusing her children. And I wonder if there was any actual punishment or if she just had to go to these classes. Maybe it depended partially on what kind of allegations they concluded with. 
Yeah. I'm wondering the severity of what they found. True. That's what I'm wondering, too, is were they being extremely lenient and just saying, well, she should learn her lesson by going to these classes, or was the abuse that was reported a smaller, not as big of a deal as it could be? I don't know. Well, Michelle's aunt, Angela Gordon, wasn't sure if Blair ever actually got a psychological evaluation. She said, they don't always do these when there are signs of abuse. If they did, half the people in Detroit would be having evaluations. Yeah, I don't get this statement. Is she saying half the people in Detroit abuse their children, or are there just not enough people to do the evaluations? I would hope that child abusers would be a high priority for this, but that's just me. Detroit's known for being kind of rough and tough. Yeah, but we don't want to profile people based on where they live. I'm not. Angela is. True. Bob Wheaton was a spokesman for the DHS, and he said he couldn't discuss specifics because of privacy laws. But the agency has no legal authority to continue monitoring, monitoring families after cases are closed. He said... What action we take is based on risk assessment, determining the needs of the children, and figuring out the best way to make sure the children are safe. We might provide services for some time, but once we close the case, we have no legal authority to be involved with the family indefinitely. Yeah, sadly, this is the way it works. Um, and these people are just doing their daily jobs, and they did at least do something. There's no evidence we can find of any nefarious intentions or just laziness. They seemed to do their due diligence, but when we consider what ended up happening, it's it, we want to say, couldn't they have done more for these kids? But Also, all this happened 10 years before the children were found. So at the time, she may have been a fine mom after these classes. That's a good point. All right, so... Let's talk about the confessions. Yes, prepare yourselves for the sad truth of what happened to Stoney and Stephen. It didn't take long in police custody for Blair to confess that she was the one that killed her children. But even more chilling is that she plainly said that she did not regret it. She referred to Stoney and Stephen as demons, but she did say she didn't mean to actually kill Stephen even though her actions are what led to his death. Yeah, so we want to give a quick disclaimer. This is the part where the details get really sad and scary. So if you don't think you can handle it today, it's a good time to stop listening or skip ahead. Um, because what happened to these kids is really sad. Michelle Player told the police everything. In August 2012, her youngest son had told her that Stephen... His older brother was sexually abusing him and making him drink Windex. Oh, this is a sad detail, but we gotta remember, Stephen was only nine at this point, and it's very likely that Michelle had been physically and verbally abusing him his entire life, based on what we learn throughout this case. So, yeah, that could have had an impact on how he was treating his little brother if if these allegations were actually true. What's up with the Windex? Does drinking Windex act like drinking alcohol or something? Why are you asking me that? 
thought maybe you've tried it. I don't know. No. Remember my big fat Greek wedding when the dad was obsessed with Windex? Windex. And he's like soaking his maybe elbow in it. The kid was watching too much of that movie. It could have been. I'm not trying to make fun of it. I just am decently curious about what happens when you drink Windex. Yeah, I'll probably cut this out. So, moving on. So, Michelle Blair confronted Stephen about the abuse, but she didn't do it calmly. She physically assaulted the child. She decided to put plastic bags over his head to suffocate him until he went unconscious. Then she would slap him until he woke up. Now, this part is really disturbing, so please be ready for this. She wrapped a belt around the little boy's neck and picked him up with it. Ugh. Ouch. I can't even believe this didn't break his neck. Like, ugh. I wonder, imagine? where does she come up with this stuff? How, who, how did she get the idea that this would be the punishment he would deserve? Ugh. Then, I, oh, go ahead. I don't even want to think about it, but, I mean, if she was just in a rage about whatever she was mad about, she was probably just looking around for things she could use to hurt him. You yeah, know? I guess. I just, I get mad at kids too, but I never, I don't know. It takes a special person to get that upset. Mm-hmm. Um, she then forced him to drink Windex, and it just keeps getting worse and worse. But after that, she boiled water and poured it on his genitals. <sighs> As she... She wouldn't feed him, and he started to appear very malnourished, and he would vomit a lot. And yeah, drinking Windex is not healthy, so no wonder he was vomiting. And what? how old is Stephen at this time again? I think he was eight. Okay. Wow. So after enduring all this torture, Stephen's poor little body couldn't take it anymore, and the family found him dead on August 20th. 2012. Michelle wrapped him in his favorite blanket and put him into the freezer. Uh, well, it seems like he was in a chest freezer in the living room, so I'm wondering if she just had that chest freezer already or if she originally put him in the kitchen freezer but ran out of space. I'm just curious about that. I'm wondering if where the other kids were during this. If they were there to witness the mom putting him in the freezer, and then it's just, like, in the living room? I think they probably were, because, well, I don't want to spoil anything, but as we dig deeper into what happened next... Yeah. Nobody noticed this disappearance of the... Oh, man, this is just a weird one. Okay. (laughs) This is probably a good time to let our listeners know that I do the research and the writing for and I, this show. I just sit so, here. <laughs> so a lot of times, Rosie is reading an outline, which goes to show you how good she is at reading, because it sounds like she's telling a story. But, um, So she's often learning a lot of these details on the spot, and we're getting her genuine reaction to them. So just a little tidbit about our recording. <laughs> you and your tidbits. Tidbits. I haven't had one since the Turpin case, so mm-hmm. it's about time. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, moving on. In the nine months that followed Stephen's death, 13-year-old Stony Blair 
overcome with the emotional stress of what had happened in this house, lashed out and said that she hated her nine-year-old brother because he was cute and he got all the attention. Once again, Michelle flipped into a blind rage and began torturing the 13-year-old girl. Michelle beat Stoney repeatedly in the face. She hit her with a two-by-four. She put a plastic bag over the girl's head and would suffocate her to near unconsciousness. Michelle would even throw boiling water on Stoney. Stoney's life was finally taken from her by her own mother as Michelle tightened a black t-shirt around her neck until she stopped breathing. She died of asphyxiation. Nine months after Stephen's death, Stoney was tortured and killed in the same way. She died May 25, 2013, but this time, Michelle Blair forced her oldest daughter to put Stoney's body in the freezer on top of Stephen's. This oldest daughter, older daughter was 17 when she told the investigators about this, but she was probably younger at the time it happened, more around 15 or 16. So I can't imagine watching my mother torture and kill my little sister and then her forcing me to pick her up and place her into a freezer. It's a nightmare, and it's scary and sad to think about the PTSD and just the emotional toll that this is going to put on this girl mm-hmm. who's now a 20-year-old woman by now. Um, for the rest of her life, that's going to affect her. So This honestly is like a horror movie. I know. It's... I can't imagine those kids walking around the house every day and having this freezer in view and knowing that their two siblings are in it. Yeah. Makes you wonder how seriously the mom actually took it. Like, if she just shrugged it off and blamed the kids themselves for getting themselves killed because they did something to make the mom mad. And it seemed like that was the pattern, is if they did something that just wasn't perfect for their mom, they would just flip this switch in her and she would somehow justify killing them? I don't it's know. It's ridiculous. To me, the mom sounds like a complete psychopath and nothing less. Yeah. Well, and as we go on in this case, we'll see, like, um, with the court proceedings and stuff, her attitude towards the whole thing is just really ridiculous. Mm. But. There was an interesting call Michelle had made to the police a while before she killed her children. She told the police that she had a friend whose older children had sexually assaulted a younger child and was curious to know what would happen to the perpetrators. They told her that all the children would be taken away from the home, and Michelle quickly ended the conversation, refusing to identify herself. So this little detail seems to kind of back up the statement Michelle had made about some strange things going on between her children. But if she's so bent out of shape about a sexual assault... How does she justify torture and murder, especially if it's by if like it's a sexual assault by an eight year old has no idea what they're doing? It's sad because it almost seems like Michelle was trying to enact her own like religious justice or something. I've always thought it was strange in some extreme religions where they take the judgment and punishment of quote unquote sinners into their own hands when they claim to be doing it in the name of God. And using violence to do it. Because if they do believe in the Bible and God, it's pretty clear about God being the final judge. So I just wonder how she justified this torture and murder in her head 
as a response to possible sexual misconduct by a nine-year-old and a 13-year-old. It's just ridiculous. Wow. You went, like, hardcore deep on that tidbit. Yep. Getting back into the tidbits. You are. Someone on Twitter did say they enjoyed my tidbits, so... Um, No, I'm not saying they're bad. I'm just like... (laughs) That one. I'm sorry. No, it's fine. Let's talk about some other details, shall we? Yes. See what other tidbits you can come up with. Uh, As these children were missing for a couple of years, neighbors did begin to wonder where they were. Sometimes Michelle would tell them that they were visiting their aunt. Other times that she'd say that they were just being antisocial and they didn't like to be around people. So they just stayed upstairs all the time. She also would never take them to the doctor because they were all covered in scars. She homeschooled the children to keep them isolated from the rest of the world. This helped her hide the murders of her children for such a long time. She continued to collect food stamps and Medicaid benefits for all four of the children, even though two of them were dead. Uh, this kind of, this reminds me of the Erica Parsons story and the Robbie Wayne story. Like, if you haven't heard either of those, you should definitely go back and listen to them. So this means she's not only guilty of assault and murder, but also fraud for taking all that money for kids that aren't even alive anymore. But I'll save save all that for the trial discussion. But she, also, um, like Robbie Wayne. She wouldn't take them to the doctor because they were covered in scars. Mm-hmm. Uh, these poor kids were doomed. Mm-hmm. Well, we should probably talk about Mich- Michelle's past. Yeah. Um, as we often talk about on this show, there's usually, if there is a monster in the story, like Liz said when we were talking to her, mm-hmm. we create these monsters. And it's usually with abuse. I mean, sometimes it's it's nature and they're just evil from the start. But a lot of times, which is a big reason we started this show, abuse is what creates these monsters. So. Mm-hmm. I don't want to feel bad for Michelle, though. <laughs> no, we're but not. We're not making no, I, excuses for her actions. No, but I know. We're this is just another thing that solidifies why. The cycle of abuse needs to end, and why, if we can make any small difference to prevent abuse, why it's so important. So why would Michelle react in such an extreme and horrible way to finding her two middle children sexually assaulting her youngest child? Apparently, it was really close to home for her. Michelle told her lawyer that the reason she reacted so violently and passionately is because she had been sexually assaulted as a child by an older woman. She told her mother about the abuse, but her mother never reported it, so she never got the justice she deserved from her her own sexual abuse. So this was building and building in her for her whole life until she finally took it out on her own children. She punished her nine-year-old son, who probably had no idea the weight of what he was allegedly doing, for what this older woman had done to her several years later, or, I mean, several years before. (laughs) I'm sorry. But I just want to reiterate that these sexual assault allegations may or may not be true. We don't want to accuse the dead children of something they may not have done. 
It could very well just be Michelle trying to excuse her own psychotic actions by making up the story. But we don't really know exactly what happened. Um, but we can learn from this that the need to get help if we're struggling with internal pain like this. If the childhood abuse story is true, it was clearly eating away at her, and she really should have gotten therapy to deal with it instead of letting the anger boil up so much that she took it out on her own children. And this is something <laughs> I wish I would have said in the end of the Emil Sillier's case, uh, episode 30, because I had said, I was really tired when we recorded that episode, but I had said, if you're thinking about murdering someone, or if you have violent outbursts at someone like Michelle here, um, it's time to get help. <laughs> I don't know. And, I'm pretty sure what you said was, if you're thinking about murdering your spouse, just don't. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. And I want to try to... But this is what you meant? I want to uh, add on to that. Okay. If you're thinking about m murdering your spouse, get help. Get therapy. Because that's what's really going to help. Um, and it not only saves people who may be your future victims, but it also saves you from your own tortured thoughts and spending your life in prison. So mm -hmm. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I forgot to mention that in the actual episode, but I should advice. have. Well, yeah. The bottom line is don't kill your spouse or anyone. Thank you. After the bodies were discovered, Michelle's 17 year old daughter and six year old son went to live with their aunt, Angela Gordon. It's kind of ironic, because Angela worked for the Detroit Police Department as a child abuse investigator for a while, before she retired after 26 years on the force. Apparently, Angela was aware that some abuse had been happening in the home, and she had told Michelle that she needed to be a better mom to her children. Angela didn't know the extent of the abuse, but she'd cut off Michelle and her kids from the rest of the family. This seems like a kind of a strange way to react to knowledge of abuse. Yeah, especially if she's on the force. Yeah, remember, this is the same one that said that if everyone was investigated, half of the people would be incarcerated or whatever. That's right. But um, we can't fault Angela for this. Like, even though these children probably needed the rest of their family more than ever... She had no idea the extent of the terrible things Michelle was capable of. And Michelle was her niece, so she was actually the kid's great aunt. Mm. But we can take this as a lesson. If we do know of abuse that's going on, it can be really difficult to report it, especially if it's our sister or brother or niece or someone close to us that's the one doing it. But it needs to be dealt with for the safety of the children. According to the 17-year-old daughter, which was the oldest one, 9-year-old Stephen had been tortured and beaten his entire life, like we mentioned before. If this would have been dealt with sooner, it could have saved both his and Stoney's lives. We also want to mention that both of the surviving children had also endured abuse from their mother, but the details are cloudy. We just don't want to forget them as victims in this case. Their entire lives have been shaken up, but hopefully they'll be better off in the long run away from their mother. Yeah. So let's talk about another factor in this case, the fathers. Michelle's four children had two different fathers. The oldest two were from Alexander Dorsey, and the youngest two were from Stephen Barry. 
But when the courts evaluated them for the parental rights, they found that Stephen Barry was $12,000 behind in support payments, and Alexander Dorsey owed $39,000. Yeah. So this could have definitely been another huge factor in the stress that Michelle was under when she committed these heinous crimes. I mean, that's over fifty grand out of her pocket. And I tried to figure out if the government insures you for child support if the absent parent doesn't pay, and it doesn't look like they do. So this is well over a typical year's salary that she was missing. So it's just a horrible situation for everyone. Apparently, during his evaluation hearing, Michelle verbally attacked Alexander, saying that he was an alcoholic and that he never cared for his children and he didn't deserve rights. She was removed from the courtroom. So Alexander's rights as a parent were revoked by the court. Because of this, the 17-year-old daughter could be eligible for two years of college and continuing mental health treatment under the care of the state being considered an orphan. Stephen's rights, on the other hand, were upheld, and he said that he hoped to rebuild a relationship with his son. But since then, the six-year-old boy has been adopted by an anonymous family. I'm glad to know the six-year-old wasn't orphaned by the courts, um, and that he did have a family to adopt him, because it's a lot harder to be orphaned at six years old, and that's like your entire childhood instead of 17 because it seemed like the state did the 17-year-old a favor mm-hmm. making her an orphan because she was able to get um, health treatment and college right. paid for by the state. So um, I think they handled that really well. Well, let's talk about the trial. Michelle tried to come across as a loving mother with good intentions during the trial. She has an excuse for everything and seems to always put the blame and responsibility for her actions onto someone else. She was sentenced to life in prison for first-degree murder and felony murder. Yeah, the difference between first-degree murder and felony murder in Michigan is that first-degree just means that it was planned out with intent. But felony murder is the result of a commission of another crime. So because the children were killed while being abused, it's a felony charge. She actually told the judge that she wanted the death penalty. But in the state of Michigan, this wasn't an option for her. I'm glad she didn't get to take the easy way out. I mean, don't get me wrong, death row is a horrible place to be. But the time of suffering is much shorter than having to spend the rest of your life in lockup. And especially if you prefer the death penalty over life in prison, I don't think you should get it. So, Wow, I can't believe she wanted it, though. Can you imagine saying that? Like, I don't know. No, I can't. But uh, I can't imagine being in this position in the first place, having killed two of my children. And... I mean, how do you live with yourself, anyway? And also, I'm wondering about her excuses for everything. Like, who did she put the blame and responsibility on for her actions? How did she come up... How did she attempt to come across as a loving mother? Well, she... She claims that she killed them because they were abusing the younger child, the Mm six-year-old boy, you know? Yeah. She claims that she's a hero for doing that, and she also claims that she was abused in her past. So many other things that you can do. 
Yeah, her well, she's obviously not in her right mind, not um, making sense to the normal person. But we definitely recommend that you go to YouTube and watch her because she's given interviews from prison, like justifying her actions. And hmm. it's just crazy. It makes me mad watching it. Mm-hmm. But So Michelle isn't having the smoothest ride in prison. She's reported having been segregated from the other prisoners because of her bad behavior. Apparently, she's thrown urine at the guards through her food door, and she's also spit on another inmate. She's assaulted other prisoners and guards, threatening to kill them. Yeah. Ugh. This is just someone that can't be stopped and just won't learn the lesson of the seriousness of what they did. Because she doesn't think she deserves to be there, which is the crazy part. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. That's crazy. There was a neighborhood gathering near Michelle's former apartment in memory of these children, and some of the neighbors gave statements. Some powerful ones that stuck out to us were, We need to come together. Ask questions. Get to know your neighbors. This has to stop. Another neighbor said, A tragedy like this shouldn't have to happen for us to come together. Yeah, I really liked those quotes because they're right along with the point what we try to stress while covering these terrible cases. It's that we need to try to appreciate what we have on a daily basis and try to be kind to everyone we meet because we don't know what they're dealing with or what they've been going through. And perhaps the biggest thing I could stress from this story is just to get help if you're dealing with an internal struggle like this. Now, it's clear that the family in this case was not very well off, and cost could definitely have been a huge concern for anyone that wants therapy but can't afford it. We found an article on careforyourmind.org by Kimberly Moreau, who is a licensed clinical social worker. She talks about how there are two huge barriers that stop people from seeking therapy, the shame surrounding the stigma of mental illness and the cost even when people have health insurance, copays and high deductibles can be too much when money is tight. She states that when you combine both of those, it's twice as shameful. So she offers five points of encouragement for people struggling with this decision. Yeah, so we're not going to spoil her article on here for you because it's hers, and if you want all the details, we encourage you to go read it. But the third one really stood out to me. Tap Community Resources. She brings out how there's some free or low-cost care options um, and that that doesn't necessarily translate to inferior care. So you can get decent care for free or low-cost. She states that there are low-cost alternatives that might meet your needs. A lot of therapists provide free or reduced-cost support and therapy in a group setting. For personal group costs... Or, <clears throat> sorry, her personal group costs $15, which most people can afford. She says that if you live near a university, you can call the graduate psychology department and ask if they have a counseling center for people in the community. These centers are staffed by graduate students who are learning to provide therapy, and the care is usually free or very low cost, and the quality doesn't suffer. Yeah, these are new graduates with the training still fresh in their minds, so their treatment can be very effective at a low cost. 
There are also crisis care services in most communities provided by the local health department, which is affordable. And if you don't have insurance, some providers have a sliding scale system based on your income. There are also apps out there like Talkspace, which is a $49 a week app, and also BetterHelp, which can be as low as $35 a week. We also found an app called Seven Cups, which offers free counseling for anxiety and stress from trained volunteer listeners, which won the Stanford Medicine X Prize for Healthcare Systems Design, which starts free for someone to talk to, but also offers upgrades. Yeah, so there are options out there, and hopefully if you're in need of therapy, you're able to find an option that works for you. It can be overwhelming, but the greatest lesson here would be don't be afraid to ask for help. I personally struggle with this, and I think it stems from having to take on a lot of responsibility at a young age when my dad left, which can really harden your pride and make it difficult to ask for help later in life. But we really want to do our part to help kill the stigma of feeling ashamed to ask for help with mental illness because we do see cases like this where it leads to abuse and even murder. Mm-hmm. So it's a serious situation. Right. I can't imagine my life without therapy. <laughs> I know. It's really changed your life and helped you to get over some tough things. And and like Liz, who we talked to, mm-hmm. I mean, therapy changed her life. Yeah. It's just, it's really amazing to see. And sometimes I wonder what my life would be like if I got therapy. And I know. I've been, I've been wanting you to try my therapist out. I probably should. <laughs> and i understand this the stigma of shame talking to a therapist or just nervousness like not knowing what you're even gonna say Mm -hmm. you know or if you have anything to talk about but yeah it's probably something that i should consider more seriously because (laughs) i don't want to be a hypocrite but on the other hand i'm not abusive so (laughs) true (laughs) I think that people get nervous about finding their right fit when it comes to therapy because that can be really challenging. And I feel like I I really lucked out when it came to my own therapist. Yeah, you did. It was kind of my first try and I just, I got it right. I got a really good one. Yeah, I actually had a bad experience with therapy because I did have it. And he was really judgmental about something I said and it really turned me off to therapy. Mm -hmm. But. Like you said, finding the right fit can be challenging, but we don't want that to scare people away from it. And Mm -hmm. especially if you feel like you could do something serious and ruin your life or someone else's. But yeah, something that we can all think about and all work on. Except you, you you got it figured out. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Thanks, Ryan. All right, well, we want to thank you again for going on this journey with us as we make podcasts about something we're passionate about. And even though we're not the best at it, um, we really appreciate the listeners that it's um, had a personal impact on. And like we said in the intro, please reach out to us and let us know if there's anything that you think we could improve. Mm -hmm. Uh, We have gotten feedback about the intro music. Um, 
like the reverse glass shattering thing being a little ear piercing. And I keep forgetting to fix that, but I, I will do that probably for this episode. So I'll work on that. And Oh, also we have a cool promo to play for you today for a podcast that you'll probably enjoy. If you like our show, uh, for targeted. Um, oh yeah, that's right. It's a really cool seasonal show that, um, talks about um people that are targeted for abuse and um if you appreciate this show you'll definitely appreciate that so we'll play that promo for you at the end of this episode mm-hmm. but besides that besides that we hope that you join us in our patreon family and you can get some cool things depending on how much you give also check us out on instagram vov podcast um what else we got we're on Twitter at VOVpod, oh, and right. you can email us at VOVpodcast at gmail.com. And I know I've been saying this for a long time, but I'm actually working on writing our first Patreon episode. So um, there will be an exclusive episode up on Patreon probably within the next week. Um, I'm going to probably finish writing it on Thursday, which is the day this comes out. So... Uh, we'll record it and get it up as soon as possible. Um, so stay tuned for that. Next week we'll announce what the episode is. And again, try to send you over there to check it out. Yeah. It'll be available for everyone that gives $2 or more a month. So We still got some pod cards left for 2018. So if you're interested in getting those, you yeah. better become a patron. Yeah, 40 awesome podcasts were part of that. And... We can't understate, I mean, we can't overstate the fact that... <laughs> we can't understate Kate, <laughs> That Kate from Ignorance Was Bliss did all the work behind the podcasts, and her family helped a lot, too. So we really appreciate them for that. Mm-hmm. Ah, other than that, I don't think there's anything I left don't think so. we have to say. What are we going to do after this, Ryan? We're going to see a movie. Yeah! Move it down! I can't remember the title, but that's not important. All right. (laughs) Um, Thank you for listening to the Voice of the Victim podcast, and we'll talk to you next week. I'm Mo Blackwell, the host of Targeted, True Crime, Domestic Violence. We investigate cases of family violence each season, using academic research to help us interpret the events so that we can become better advocates. In season one, we follow the case of little Militia Gibson who was murdered by her stepfather as her mother stood by without intervening. We learn that Militia was not the only one being abused and took a hard look at laws and policies regarding abuse. In season two, we're telling the story of Tracy Thurman who sued her city because police refused to protect her from her abusive husband. We'll also study the case of Joshua Osborne. His case was sensational, replete with a biker gang who rallied to protect Joshua and new legislation resulting from his case. Josh passed away a few years ago and two of his siblings agreed to tell his story. Except they've revealed it wasn't just Josh's story. It's their story too. One that has been suppressed for over a decade. You can find Targeted Podcast, True Crime, Domestic Violence on iTunes, Spotify, and all the major podcatchers. 
Peace, my friends. Peace.